Bibles now, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 5, and we are still studying the opening verses of this fifth chapter, and tonight we're discussing the subject that I began last week, O to be like thee, and I take that title, the message, from the first verse of Ephesians 5, where Paul says that we are to be followers of God as dear children, and the word followers there actually comes from a Greek word that means to mimic or to imitate. And so that ought to be the desire of every Christian, that we would imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to caution you as I say that, when I say that we ought to be imitators, because uh, it's impossible for, for us to imitate God unless we have the power of God. And you'll lose your mind, I promise you, you'll lose your mind. You'll go crazy trying to live a Christian life if you really don't know who Jesus is and you're not very well acquainted with him. You need his assistance in order to live a Christian life. If not, then your whole life will be one of failure and of disappointment. But God, that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to imitate Christ. Now, sometimes what people will do is they will try to apply the principles of Christianity without really knowing the Christ of Christianity. But that's not something that will ever work. You, you can't expect people will live holy and righteously unless they know the Lord and they have a change of their heart. Now, I think that there are some important concepts for us to consider in these first two verses. That's why I've taken three sermons. This is part number two of the, of the sermon. We have three parts, and I've taken three parts to, to explore this a little bit. We have to dig a little bit deeper. We have to do some underground excavation almost here to get down to the real depths of this and try to understand exactly what all does it mean to imitate Christ. Well, we're going to learn some more truths about this tonight. So if you please stand and we'll read these first two verses of Ephesians chapter 5. And here Paul writes, Be therefore followers of God, and that's imitators, mimickers of God, as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful tonight for each one who's come out to study your word. We pray, Lord, you might open up this text to us tonight so that we might understand better what you'd have us to know. Help us, Lord, to apply the principles of your word to our lives, and we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Since this is part number two of the sermon I began last week, I do want to go back and refresh your memory just a little bit about what we talked last week. The first point of the sermon last week was the revelation of God's character. We talked about the revelation of God's character. And if we are to imitate God, then we certainly have to know something about the personality of God. We have to know what God is like. Uh, I would never be able to tell you that you could imitate someone or you ought to imitate someone that you don't know anything about. And so you have to be acquainted with Christ in order to imitate him. And uh, you have to know something about his character. And there is only one person who has revealed to us what God is like. It's impossible for us to know what the Heavenly Father is like unless we look at one particular person, and that's at the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that he is the expression or he is the revelation of the invisible God. And so if we're going to imitate God, we have to look at the life of Christ and see what his life was like and then pattern ourselves after that. Now, in our last lesson, we learned basically two things about God's character. And one is that there are some ways where we simply cannot imitate God. 
And there are other ways in which we can imitate him. And the difference between those two positions of whether you can or you can't are defined by the special attributes that God possesses. One type of God's attributes are called his natural attributes, or we sometimes term those as incommunicable attributes. And the other type of attributes are moral attributes, and sometimes we call those the communicable attributes of God. So there are some things, that attributes that God has, that it's just totally impossible for us to be like him. Those natural attributes are things that are just inherent to the very nature of God, and they can't be passed along to us as creatures. But the the other attributes, the moral attributes of God, these are things that God can pass to us. And so when Paul tells us that we are to be imitators or followers of God, those are the attributes that he's talking about, the moral attributes of Jesus Christ. And as we look into the scriptures, we find uh, several of these attributes, and you're familiar with them, holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, Uh, Love, all of those different things are moral attributes that can be passed along to us. And in those things, we are expected to imitate Christ. So first of all, we have then the revelation of God's character. Now this evening, I want to go on to discuss the second uh, part of this. And this is the imitation of God's children. The imitation of God's children. Now verse number one says, "...be therefore followers of God as dear children." We are in a relationship with God as his children. And as children, we are to be a reflection, a good reflection upon the parent. Now, as a child grows up, there are certain characteristics that you can uh, look at that child. You can tell that he is the child of his parents. Many times children, of course, look like mom or dad. And so they have that relationship. And because they're close to them that way and they've been born of their parents, lots of times they look like their parents. There are other ways that you can tell whose children a child might be by looking at their behavior. Uh, You can learn something about the, the environment that those kids have grown up in and how their parents have raised them in that way. But everything that, that the child is in relation to his parents is because there is that parent-child relationship. Well, we are also God's children, and the only reason why we can be like God is because of that relationship. Well, the world is very much confused about that because uh, people can be very moral people and yet uh, they can be otherwise very ungodly people. It's not just morality that makes a Christian. It takes more than that. And people can be moral for just simply selfish reasons. There are reasons why people may be moral. But when you are a Christian, you have a relationship with God, there's a reason why you're moral. And that's because you do have that that relationship. So our motive to to be like Christ is because we do have this parent-child relationship and we want to honor our Father as we obey Him. Now, if we go back to the beginning of Ephesians, we'll see how this relationship came about because Paul writes in the first chapter, verses 3 through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, verse number five is the important verse I want you to see here. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So we have become the children of God. God has adopted us. So why can we be like God? 
Well, here's the next blank in your listening sheet. Because of our adoption. We can be like him because of our adoption. Now, adoption is a very important Bible doctrine, and it paints a very, with a very uh, broad brush because it includes some very important concepts. It, first of all, includes the change that God makes in us through regeneration and justification. Now, in justification, our legal standing with God is changed. The guilt of sin that's in, the, in us as sinners has been expunged. And so there's now no lawful and no legal reason that God can't claim us as his children. But justification doesn't deal with the moral questions that we're talking about. What, what deals with that particular aspect of it is our regeneration. And see, that's what changes the inherent moral and spiritual state of the soul. Before regeneration, there's nothing but spiritual death. And so there is no possibility that we can have righteousness. Uh, We can't be like God. There's no righteousness of God. And that's why we say that regeneration must precede repentance and faith. Uh, We have to have uh, this this, uh, regeneration first. Repentance and faith are righteous acts. And they could never be performed by someone who's in an unregenerate, spiritually dead state. Now, that's really, folks, the the crux of the matter when it comes to the theology of salvation and why this is so confused in fundamental preaching today. Because when you place repentance and faith before regeneration, then you have to deny the total depravity of man and also deny total inability. And that is, in fact, what the fundamentalists do. They deny total depravity, and so that gives them the ammunition that they need to teach this thing of synergistic salvation. In other words, salvation is a cooperative effort between God and man. And that's what led that uh, professor at West Coast that we've been quoting uh, to speak of regeneration in this way. He says, if it's all about God. In other words, he's saying regeneration is not all about God, that it must include something from us. Well, if that's true, then you have a spiritually dead man with moral incapability performing righteous acts. And if that's the case, then you don't need regeneration in the first place. I mean, if you can do righteous acts without regeneration, why do you need it? And that would put us right back in the very same class with people who are just simply moral without a relationship to Jesus Christ. And so you see what happens here? This whole theology crumbles because an expiatory atonement is no longer needed if that's true. Man can perform any spiritual act that he wants to without regeneration. But here's the thing about adoption. It includes both our legal standing and our moral standing with God. And it enables us to be followers of God as children. Now, you need to make note of that because that's especially important. Adoption encompasses our legal and moral relationship as sons of God. The legal and moral relationship. Now, I want to take the next few minutes to talk to you about the benefits that we receive in adoption. What do we actually receive in this adoption? Well, I want to remind you that first in in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5 that we just read, that this adoption was planned before the foundation of the world, and God knew exactly who would be included in that. So what do we receive from it? Well, the first thing that we receive, we receive God's nature, His nature. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, Peter writes, "...whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." 
Now, the divine nature is what God gives us in regeneration. Now, a moment ago, I told you that regeneration changes the inherent moral and spiritual state of the soul. And our sinful nature will never by itself allow us to to escape corruption because that sinful nature itself is, in fact, corrupt. And so that's one of the reasons why you must have the Holy Spirit come into your heart and work a work of regeneration before you can ever express repentance and faith. It's impossible for anybody to imitate God without and do righteous acts without the impartation of the divine nature. The second thing that we receive is we receive God's image. Now, I want you to notice a verse in Colossians that is a parallel to our study in Ephesians. Paul is always perfectly consistent with the theology of salvation. And so he writes in the third chapter of Colossians, uh, uh, verse numbers 8 through 10, he says, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put, on the, put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now, you probably recognize that those verses are a parallel to the ones that we studied in, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 22 to 31. But I want you to notice the statement that he makes here about the new man in Colossians. He says, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. And that's a parallel to the verse in Ephesians 4, verse 24. It says, And that he put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So righteousness and holiness are products of the image of God. Well, something happened to us when Adam fell. We lost the image of God. We lost the righteousness and holiness of the image of God. But what adoption does for us is to restore that righteousness and holiness. Now, what is it that we've been discussing as one of the, uh, the moral or godly attributes that God wants us to imitate Christ in? Well, two of those things we discussed last week, didn't we? And those two things were righteousness and holiness. We can be like God in that way. And so as we examine the scriptures here and compare scripture with scripture, the Bible starts to bring these things together for us. Now, the third thing that we receive in adoption is we receive God's name. Now, listen to this wonderful verse in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. There Jesus said that the one who overcomes will receive a new name. Now, I want to ask you something about that new name. Do you think that it's possible for us to receive that name by putting our effort into it? By putting all the human effort that we could muster into this, that somehow we're able to receive that new name? Well, I don't think so. Because John defines a person who is an overcomer. And he says it this way in 1 John 5, verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? So it's by faith that we overcome the world. Now keep following me on this. Now pay attention to me. Where do we get our faith? 
Well, in the beginning of Second Peter, Peter says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, first of all, we, of all we learned here from John, that believers are overcomers. And Peter says that those who are believers have obtained like precious faith. Well, who are those people? Well, if you study First Peter, you know that in the second book of Peter, he's writing to the very same people that he writes to in the first book. And here's what he says in First Peter 1, verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So these overcomers, the one who have obtained faith, are the elect of God before the foundation of the world. Now listen to how Paul says that they obtain their faith. Well, we go back to our study in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So the faith that they obtain is a faith that's given by God. They obtain like precious faith, which means that they will overcome, which in turn means that they will receive this new name that God states here in Revelation 3, verse 12. Now, I hope you're getting that because what this does, it ties it all back to this adoption that's planned and purposed before the world began. Now, do you see what happens when you begin to to change the theology of salvation? All of it crumbles. Scripture falls right down to a heap if you don't get this order right. To change the order then would mean that faith is not fully God-supplied. And that would lead you right back to that erroneous teaching of synergistic salvation. When God gives faith, we're not talking here that God believes for us, certainly not. He enables faith. And what I mean is, what we formerly were not able to do, we could not have faith unless God had worked in His first and given it to us. It's impossible for us to exercise faith until we receive the grace of regeneration. And when we receive that grace in regeneration, then true saving faith is possible. Now, put it all together, and you understand why I emphasize all these things. Uh, The gospel has to be taught correctly. And our Baptist forefathers knew that. That's why they insisted upon the doctrines of grace, and they preached it from their pulpits, and they stuck with that. Because it has to be right. And a change of theology that mixes these things up, like many Baptists are preaching today, completely throws the scriptures into a tailspin. They just won't work together. Now, you've got to take scripture and compare with scripture, and you come up with the truth of the matter, and that is that we receive our generation, and God works in our hearts first, and because he has worked in us, then we can have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the fourth thing that we receive in adoption is that we receive God's love. And this love that we receive from him is so far above anything that we know that we can't even fully comprehend it. The Bible describes Jesus as the eternal Son of God. In his relationship to the Father, he is termed a son. And what that means is that Jesus has voluntarily subjected himself to the will of the Father. And what is it that Jesus came to do? He came to this earth to be a voluntary sacrifice, obedient sacrifice for sin. But the important thing about this that I want to point out to you is that the relationship is described as sonship. His relationship to the Father is described as sonship. Now, way back, months and months ago, when we studied adoption in in the first chapter, I told you then that 
there, there's a difference between our sonship and Christ's sonship. And that is that Christ, of course, is the eternal son by eternal generation. And we don't have that. The only way that we can be sons of God is through this process of adoption. But the benefits of our sonship are the same things that Christ is receiving. Now, here's what the Bible says about the fact that we are sons of God. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And so we've entered into a relationship whereby, in the same type of relationship that God loves his own son, he also loves us. Now, that seems like an impossible thing for us to fathom, that God could love us like he loves Jesus Christ. But this is what it says in John 17, 23. Jesus states it himself. He says, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now, what is the love that God has for his son? Well, the Bible says it's an eternal love. Jesus said in the next verse, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. God loved his son before the foundation of the world, and Jesus says that God loves those that have been given to him in the same way that he loves the son. Well, put that together, and what you come up with is that God loved us before the foundation of the world. That means that God must have loved those who would be saved in time all the way back before the foundation of the world. So the obvious implication of this, that the ones that God loves are one and the same that finally come into the glories of heaven. Well, if that's true, then he must be speaking of a particular people. It must be someone in particular that he loved before the foundation of the world. It can't be just he loves everybody before the foundation of the world because these same ones that he loves are the ones that are going to end up in heaven. So there has to be a distinction here. It has to be a particular people, and Christ could not have loved those particular people if he didn't know exactly who they were. And do you know that's exactly how the Bible puts it? In Romans eight twenty nine, For whom he did foreknow... He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And the word foreknow there means much more than just simple knowledge. Here the word means to forelove. So what we have is the Bible all tying itself together. Because what, when we're speaking of adoption, what does it say in Ephesians 1.5? Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of, will, of his will. So what we're doing here is we keep tying back everything that Paul says into the doctrines of grace that he's been teaching throughout the whole book. And that's been our approach to this book. How does he reveal to us these, these things that God has done all the way back before time even began? Now, the fifth thing that we receive in adoption is that we receive God's Spirit. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Well, here's why that we can become imitators and followers of God. It's because the Spirit lives in us. The Holy Spirit 
has come to live inside of us. He indwells the Christian. We have to have the same spirit that Christ has. He's a son and we're a son. So we have to have the same spirit that Christ has. And so this Holy Spirit living inside of us is that guarantee of eternal salvation. You see, in order for you to lose your salvation, something greater than the Holy Spirit would have to come in and would have to drive him out. Well, is there anything greater than the Holy Spirit? Well, of course not. If the Holy Spirit is God, which the Scriptures confirm, then there has to be something greater than God that could ever drive him out. And if something is greater than God, then whatever is greater has to be God. But if you listen to last week's message, we found out that that is an impossibility to have something that's greater than God. His natural attributes preclude that. And so for that reason, no one could ever have the Holy Spirit driven from their, from their lives. And so you know what that teaches us? Well, it teaches us that other doctrine of grace, the doctrine of perseverance. God's people persevere because of the Holy Spirit. Now, even though there are some people who teach against perseverance, we know that it's true because we have this permanent presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we continue in faith and in our good works for one reason and one reason only, and that is because the Holy Spirit is the one who indwells us. So our adoption guarantees this. We can follow God in his moral attributes because the Holy Spirit won't leave us. Now, number six, another benefit... We receive God's inheritance. When you are adopted into God's family, you receive the right of the inheritance of all the riches of glory. Paul speaks about that again in chapter 1 of Ephesians. We've seen there that we are predestinated to adoption. And so we should be able to figure out by what we've already discussed that if we're predestinated to adoption according to Ephesians 1.5, then we would have to be also predestined to those graces that are included in adoption. And what were those graces? Justification and regeneration. We're predestined to those. Well, what are justification and regeneration? Salvation. So we're predestined to salvation, nothing less than salvation. You can't get adoption. You never can get to adoption without taking the graces that are involved in that. And so people who do not believe in predestination to salvation have to throw out Ephesians chapter 1 verse, verse 5 because there our adoption includes these things, regeneration and justification. So Paul says beyond that even, we are predestined to an inheritance that rightful belongs to adopted children. Now Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, And whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. So our adoption gives us the right to receive Christ's inheritance. That's what Paul says in Romans 8 verses 15 to 17. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So here, we have all these blessed privileges that come from God because of our adoption. And when we possess all of these things as God's dear children, that's when we can become imitators of God. Now, the world looks at morality and trying to live a moral life as an imposition. And they do it 
because in certain circumstances, because they have to do it, they want to live a moral life. But a Christian understands the true cause of our morality, the true cause of why we want to live a Christian life, and it's because of that relationship that we have with God the Father as his children. But let's go on. We're going to make one more observation tonight. Why can we imitate God as dear children? Well, the next one is because of our appreciation. Now, we do it because of adoption, but we also do it because of our appreciation. And I mean that God has done something for us that he's done for no other people of the world. Now, a lost person certainly has reasons to thank God and to appreciate what God does for him. Because God gives us all breath. He enables all of us to live. And so every person ought to appreciate God for that. But a person who doesn't know Jesus Christ personally is not enabled to live on this higher plane uh, with God and experience all the blessings that God gives in a much different way as being one of his children. Now, the world says, well, what do you mean? We're all God's children, aren't we? Well, no, we aren't. Uh, Jesus said that. He, he's talking to the Pharisees and said, you are of your father the devil. In John eight forty four, ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. So the lost world will not imitate Christ because they're too busy imitating their true father. And their true father is the devil. So they've never experienced this relationship that we have. And so consequently, they could never show the appreciation to God that we can show. There was something that I truly desired when I was growing up. Uh, I never wanted to bring uh, shame to my dad. And I respected my dad. I honored my dad. And I, I tried to live a life that I would never bring reproach upon his name. Now, I was conscious of the way that I lived, things that I did. I didn't always do what was right, that's for sure. But I tried my very best in most cases not to do anything that would ever bring a reproach upon my father. Now, I remember, though, once when when I was a a teenager that my dad said something to me that I'll never forget. And he only said this one time in my life. And uh, when he said this, it was worse than having him beat me within an inch of my life. And that's my dad said to me one time, only one time in my whole life he ever said it. He said, I'm disappointed in you. And I don't remember what I did. That's long since gone. But I do remember those words. And so I vowed that I was never going to do anything again that would bring reproach upon my father. Well, of course I did things that were wrong. We all do. But I never let him know it. I mean, as far as he could tell, I was the perfect kid. I mean, that's the way that I tried to live. I didn't want him to be disappointed in me. Well, my dad passed away nine years ago last month. And to this very day, I'm still very careful about what I do with the family name. Now, you may remember this statement that I I quoted some months ago uh, in another lesson on Ephesians. I said, the honor of the family is in the hands of the child. Now, I thought that was a good way that that author put that. The, The honor of the family is in the hands of the child. And that's no less true in God's family. And if you don't show appreciation to God for your adoption into God's family by living according to these moral attributes that we find in Jesus Christ explained to us in the Word, then you bring reproach upon the family name. Well, understand this, that the family name is imposed upon everyone who's one of God's children. So that means that you're my brother and sister in Christ and I'm yours. And when you don't live as a Christian should, or I don't live as a Christian should, then we bring reproach upon the entire family, everybody who's in the family. Now, you may remember back in Genesis that God spoke to Cain. 
And he said, where's your brother Abel? And Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And he acted as if his actions had no bearing on whatever happened to Cain and things, or, or Abel rather, and things that Abel would do. Well, most certainly they did. And, and the lesson that we learned from that is, oh yes, we are our brother's keeper. And we're to watch one another and watch out for one another. And we're all in the same family if we're believers in Christ. And we ought to protect our family name. God expects us to be appreciative of what he's done for us by protecting that family name. Romans fourteen seven says, For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth unto himself. And so here's what you can't do. You can't say, I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven when I die. You can't say that and at the same time say, But I don't want to live this Christian life. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. The honor of the family is at stake. And if you appreciate God the way you should, then you will imitate him through the example of Christ. So here we find two areas about being a follower of God. We talked about the revelation of his character and the imitation of God's children. Now next week, we're going to finish this lesson with what I believe to be one of the most important sermons that we'll we'll have in this series because we're going to talk about the sacrifice of Christ. Paul says in verse number 2, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now next week, we're going to talk about a third of the doctrine, or another of the doctrines of grace, actually the third one in the list, we're going to talk about the atonement of Christ. And that's a very important lesson. We're going to discuss part number three of Ode to be like thee and what happened with the atonement of Christ. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, the opportunity we have tonight to discuss your word. I pray, Lord, again, that you'd open our hearts to the truth, that we might understand these things, we might apply these things. And, Lord, we do want to have those moral attributes present that we see in Christ. And, Lord, we do want to honor our family name because we belong to you. We have a relationship with you. And we thank you, Lord, that you've adopted us into your family. Be with us in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.